Hello and welcome to the Investment Hour from the Investors Chronicle at the end of week six of government lockdown. It feels like a long time since the UK government announced this. We are collectively telling, telling cafes, pubs, bars and restaurants to close tonight as soon as they reasonably can and not to open tomorrow. It may have been a hectic six weeks for the Prime Minister, who has spent time in critical care in hospital, shaken off coronavirus and had a baby. But for the pubs, restaurants, retailers, gyms, travel and leisure companies, it has no doubt been a slow and painful month and a half. Got no money coming in through the tills, which is not something that we'd ever planned for, as you can appreciate. I'm John Human, and this week we're going to talk about the challenges facing companies as behaviour has changed during the coronavirus lockdown and what that might mean for huge sectors of the economy if those behavioural changes become permanent. And I'm Megan Boxall, and we're going to be following the fallout from the behavioural changes up the chain. Talking to Emma Powell about the property industry. Companies like Workspace, they only collected half their rent, and, and the chief exec there actually, I spoke to him, he was saying that he expects just because of the kind of supply demand flipping now that pricing is going to suffer going forward. And Alex Newman about the difficulties in the banking sector. The price to book value ratios of most banks are now at such incredibly depressed levels that in a sense it's it's harder to see how much lower they can go. And while it's often said that sales are vanity and profit is sanity, I'll be talking to Phil Oakley to find out why understanding revenues matters more to investors than the old saying suggests. The Investment Hour. 60 Minutes of Money with the Investors Chronicle. So, John, six weeks. We're at the end of seven weeks because the office closed a week before the government's official lockdown started. Starting to get a bit rough, to say the least. We're missing the pub. We're missing the office. And we're probably finding it a lot easier than the people who actually own those offices and pubs and shops and you name it. It's it's not easy. What's going on? Well, we can still work. So, yeah, we are finding life a bit better because business carries on. But business has just stopped for lots and lots and lots of people in the, uh, the hospitality space particularly, but retail as well. Um, we have some numbers. We can see what the impact of COVID was in March um, on retail sales, uh, and the, you know it's it's massive, and that was March. So as you say, this lockdown has been six weeks. Only two of them were in March, uh, yet uh, non-food sales in March were down twenty percent. Uh, food sales were up fifteen percent. So you know we already started to see that the kind of shifts in behaviour happening uh, in that month. April is going to be much much worse. And April, the food sales might not be so good either because. People did a lot of stockpiling at the at the end of March, so we might not even have that that part of the retail sector propping it up quite as much as as it was in the first couple of weeks of lockdown. Although maybe we've we've seen you know, we've had a food delivery what seems like every other day, quite frankly. Uh, although it's, I mean, it took us a long time to get certain things. It took a long time until we could get any eggs, you know, and it's still quite difficult to get uh, delivery slots. Uh, which is why we sort of take them opportunistically as we can. Um, yeah, things are not back to normal. Things are not back to normal. And I've also, uh, my local brewery has run out of Puck's Folly, which is really annoying. Um, but yeah, I, I, think we, uh, I think we have had uh, a rough month um, and people are getting to the end of their tether. We heard from Tim Martin at the beginning there. There is a desire to get things moving again. 
particularly from people like Mr. Martin, Mike Ashley as, at Fraser's Group, which was Sports Direct. They want to get opening. They are they are ringing the bell for business. It's interesting that those those two characters. I mean, they are big characters in particular. They they are saying we need to get back. We need to get going again. But if those two, they, those are big companies, Fraser's and Weatherspoons. But if they're struggling, how are the smaller companies that? The privately owned companies, the the people who own their own family businesses, that that's uh, that's really really tough for them. And and yeah, as as lockdown maybe starts to get lifted in the next couple of weeks, we might we might start to really see the real impact on on what the lockdown has meant for so such big areas of of the UK economy. Yeah, I mean, we have. I mean, you you can only speculate how hard this is for a small retailer it, it, or a small restaurant owner. You know, those those businesses are. Uh, are tough to run at the best of times, tough to make money from at the best of times. Uh, and this is the worst of times. We're seeing some numbers from some very large retailers um, and you know people like Marks and Spencer and Next who came out with a very, very detailed update uh, and uh, uh, basically scenario planning and, and how bad this can get. And, and it's saying things are, are even worse than it expected. They're likely to be even worse than expected. Marks and Spencer's uh, cut its final dividend. Um, and they're all taking advantage of, of the uh, the kind of rate relief that the government has offered. You know, there, there are schemes, but nevertheless, things are still really, really tough, uh, even for the very largest businesses like Next and Marks and Spencer. It's not good when companies like that are reporting such dire numbers, and they are, they're really, really dire. And the other side of things, which has shifted very rapidly because of the lockdown and coronavirus, is the way we're working. And we've we've had US tech results in the last few days, and they really show how rapidly the change in the way we work has happened. I mean, Microsoft's numbers were ridiculous. They reported something like a 700% increase in the use of Teams in Italy because everyone everyone's working from home. Everyone's having to use and That's what we're using right now. We're using Google Hangouts. Everyone's using this work-from-home software. So these software companies, yeah, that's fine. They're doing, they're, they're doing well. But, yeah, they mean it means that we're not going into the office. We're not using the local shops the local cafes the local pubs and and how soon is it going to be before we are starting to use those again because it doesn't look like we're going back into the office anytime soon yeah it's it's interesting i mean i was walking up the high street uh, today and lots of businesses lots of restaurants have been shut i saw one today had actually finally succumbed to offering uh, to opening itself up for delivery so i think you know everybody is reaching the point where they're thinking we've got to we've got to get going i mean we did see something from the u.s uh, this week there was uh, some some uh, drug trial data from uh, Gilead, which is which has uh, sort of made everyone a little bit optimistic that, that, that there is some light at the end of the tunnel here, uh, and that, that actually you know th- there may be some kind of solution which helps us get out of the uh, out the house a little bit a bit quicker. We we might be hearing from Boris Johnson later about about what the government's lockdown plans are. We by the time you listen to this, we may have already heard what Boris Johnson. We may well have <laughs> plans are. Uh, yeah, obviously we're recording on. Thursday afternoon and Boris Johnson is back at work back at the office today after after his uh, difficult few weeks but yeah I mean if there isn't hasn't been an update yet there's gonna have to be it's the 7th of May which was the next legal time that the government has to update on on what the lockdown is and and yeah like you say I think people are reaching the end of their tether and yeah the fact that we're seeing retailers and well the food the food companies starting to go back and offer takeaway services shows that they're really now having to say right you know what if if your health is is okay you need to come back and and help us out here because there isn't going to be a company left at the end of this and and those are the decisions that six weeks ago that those companies have had the option to remain open this whole time 
but they have made this decision based on the health of their employees and their staff. But actually, those staff may not have a job if they don't start start running something, getting some money through the tills, as Tim Martin says, sometime soon. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would like the pub to open sometime soon. And all those restaurants, I would like to give them my money. Um, I'm sure they would like to uh, to get back to normal. I'm sure their landlords would like them to get back to normal as well. This is a, there's a whole knock-on effect of, uh, of of me not spending my money in a pub or in a, in a restaurant or in a in uh, the local retailer uh, and we're going to hear about that now aren't we yeah yeah and with with that said we'll go to the next stage up the chain and talk to emma powell about what the lack of spending means for the commercial landlords hi emma thanks very much for for joining us so obviously the decline in the high street is something that's been happening for a while and it's something that has been having a knock-on effect on the commercial landlords which rent that space to the retailers on the high street but all those trends have been accelerated, obviously, with the lockdown. So what is the impact that that is having on the on the commercial landlords which are renting high street space right now? Yeah, well, like you said, this has really been kind of catalyst for an existing trend for a lot of the kind of high street landlords. Obviously, we've had this moratorium on evictions until the 30th of June, which could be extended. And also more recently, um, a ban on statutory demands and winding up orders. So for landlords, really, during the end of March, beginning of April, when they were collecting rent for the second quarter. Obviously, a lot of the retail landlords saw a big uh, drop in collections. I mean, for Into, I think it was under 30%. And for Hammerson, it was just over 30%. So a huge drop. I suppose what what will be more interesting to see is, um, you know, during the next quarter collection date, whether that picks up at all or or whether the kind of financial strain on a lot of these retailers who obviously weren't in a great financial position before any of this started, whether that that kind of means that they can't really afford to pay their rent again. So, you know, landlords have to look at deferrals or switching to monthly repayments or I suppose, you know, what kind of legal protection they have at that point. Yeah, I mean, that is a really interesting point, especially the point about the moratorium. So, Obviously, some of these retailers are being protected from the fact that they currently haven't got any money coming in. But then that is feeding back up the chain to these landlords who like, where do they go if if their tenants aren't paying them? Uh, And what support are they getting, if any? There's not a lot they can do, to be honest. And it's been a bit of a bugbear for for a lot of landlords who, when you speak to them, say, well, obviously, we understand that, you know, our tenants they've shut their businesses they're not getting any revenue in at the moment we understand obviously you know we're willing to work to work with them um but but something else a lot of landlords i've spoken to have said well we're also actually trying to you know figure out which are the ones we should support and which actually their owners their backers some of them have got huge investors they should be footing the bill for some of this so i think that's also something uh landlords you know they're not just going to accept you know, all of their tenants saying, oh, we can't afford to pay at the moment. Um, it's it's rightly so. A lot, a lot of the retailers obviously have, have got this support legally, but for a landlord, you're in a very difficult position. Yeah, yeah. And potentially not something that's going to get e- any easier. As you say, this is a trend that's been happening for a while and, and coronavirus has accelerated it. But at the end of this, there might be lots of vacancies. There might be businesses which just can't fill the space because they've gone out of business so so then what uh, is it is there a worry that landlords just aren't going to be able to fill their their retail space yeah definitely 
definitely. I mean, if if you look at it even before coronavirus, um, even before the outbreak, uh, rental values were falling across the retail market. And some, some landlords were thinking, well, what can we do in terms of change of use? But because of planning regulation, that's not so easy in terms of kind of switching your high street or your shopping centre locations to residential and stuff. That's actually quite hard. I think it it seems inevitable there'll be an increase in vacancies and therefore further decline in rental values. Um, because you know what, if if people aren't taking the space, then you've got to drop your price, haven't you? Mm. Yeah. And then, so how about then the another side of the commercial property market, the the office rental space, and that is that's a trend which maybe has come about far quicker than or changed rapidly because of coronavirus. Obviously, the retail thing was already something that was happening. But a shift in demand for office space feels like it's something quite new. Obviously, all of a sudden, we're not having to go into the office very much at the moment. Uh, How are the, the office landlords coping with that? Yeah, that's a tricky one as well, because, um, uh, because obviously, yeah, like you say, I mean, just like us, we, we can work from home. You've got Zoom, you've got all the tools to do that. Do I need, um, as an employer, to rent out fancy office space in the middle of London at quite a large cost? Well, perhaps not. Perhaps I can take less space. Um, the other side of, I suppose, the immediate impact we've seen now is, um, you know, all the office landlords have suffered a decline in second quarter rental collections because they've not, they've also got the likes of New Look and all these kind of fast fashion and and retail companies who obviously are under strain themselves. So they've had to ask for, you know, rent deferrals and things like that. I mean, they're they're better placed than the retailers, obviously, but um, again, it seems inevitable there will be a bit of a re-evaluation by companies which could also feed through to decline in pricing perhaps you know decline in the amount they're able to charge for space. The section of that market which is really interesting is the flexible office space which was we were seeing such a massive massively high demand for for space like we work and now all of a sudden that might not be something that's happening so much in the future how are how are the landlords coping with that change? Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting one, isn't it? It's crazy. Actually, I read a stat that uh, flexible flexible office space accounted for about a quarter of the total London office market last year. It was the biggest proportion of take up among any other sector for the first time, um, and that's obviously really been been fed by kind of WeWork and and, and a lot of the um, established landlords actually trying to get into that market to compete. I suppose the flip side of of, of the of flexible workspace, and obviously it was popular with businesses, is that uh, like you kind of mentioned, it's very easy just to hand the keys back, right? You're on a very flexible lease. There was a survey out, actually, um, I think it came out this week, that mentioned that inquiries were down about half, um, unsurprisingly, at the moment. And obviously, rental collections for companies like Workspace, which actually owns the freehold, which kind of sets it apart from a WeWork or an IWG, they only collected half their rent. And, And the chief exec there, actually, I spoke to him, he was saying that he expects, just because of the kind of supply demand flipping now, that pricing is going to suffer going forward which again seems inevitable doesn't it Mm, yeah so is it a sector that we should be steering clear of completely as investors or are there any companies which look like they might be weathering the storm yes some some of them are actually doing quite well like the key with all these landlords is obviously 
looking at their loan to value ratios like that starts creeping up a lot that's a warning sign looking at interest cover because obviously they've got to meet their own kind of finance costs through the rent that they're receiving so high interest cover is great um and also i suppose another thing you want to look at is the uh, amount of development risk they've got so not all the office providers do a lot of um, big developments because obviously the risk of you know doing a lot of developments is are they going to be the takers when I've finished? So I think like CLS is quite a good one. Um, doesn't do a lot of development. It's got kind of spread across France, Germany, UK. Um, collected about 87% of its rent during the second quarter, which isn't actually bad. That's better than most of them. Um, low loan to value ratio and quite a lot of cash, actually, because they made loads of disposals last year, actually thinking they were going to go out and acquire a lot of assets this year, which obviously isn't happening. Um, so they're quite a good one. Another good one is, is Derwent, actually, um, mainly because it's got, again, very low loan to value ratio. I think it's about 16%, which is among the lowest you'll see in any sector in real estate. Um, very good quality stock. And I mean, like all most of the kind of real estate shares has been sold off uh, pretty heavily. So we actually included Derwent in, in one of our kind of wish list shares recently a couple of weeks ago yeah quality definitely seems to be key at the moment quality and cash thanks very much emma really good to to unravel some of what's going on in a in a difficult market to understand no worries so we've heard from emma powell about some of the pain that's being experienced in the property industry now we're going to speak to alex newman and find out what that means for the banks who uh, obviously lend a lot of money to the property business uh, how are you doing alex i'm good thanks john yeah yeah not too bad how are you I'm all right. I'm all right. Thank you. Last week, you wrote a big preview of Bank's first quarter results, um, and we're starting to see those tricking through now. So, so what are we seeing? Are, are we uh, are we seeing what we might have expected? Uh, loan impairments, uh, some some real trouble in industries like property. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly the former. So, big thing we we kind of flagged, uh, which not really much of a surprise for investors to look out for in these results was the level of loan loss um, uh, provisions or. or or basically the the amount of uh, uh, sort of bad debts which which um, banks are expecting to to now be sitting on their balance sheets, and that's that's really been the headline of of the results so far. So we, we're speaking on Thursday. We've we've had four of the five um, a very large UK listed banks have already reported, and in all cases that has been that has been the main, the main headline. How much they've uh, they've had to set aside for uh, loan loss provisions. In in turn, that's really knocked their um uh, their pre-tax profits to the first quarter quite considerably um in hsbc's case it, it halved them in the case of lloyds which put out numbers today it's pretty much decimated um all of their all of their profits uh, and, the, and the thing to note is these uh these loan loss provisions were, were were quite a way ahead of what the market had been expecting um that may because maybe because banks are trying to get some of the you know the most of the pain out early it could be that things are just running away from from the market uh you know market consensus forecasts uh already and that and this is just this is the beginning of um you know a really really painful year for uh for for bank profitability and their balance sheets so, so what sort of numbers are we talking about and where where is the pain being felt most what sort of lending are we seeing provisions uh being uh, put in place against We'll start with uh, with HBC, HSBC, which which um, put out numbers on on Monday. They they uh, they increased their loan loss provisions fivefold to, to three billion dollars, and that was that was about seventy three percent worse than consensus forecasts had it. Um, Barclays 
I mean, proportionally, they're, they're loan loss provisions because they're quite a smaller uh, relative to HSBC. They're a smaller bank. So they they put out a £2.1 billion credit impairment charge for bad loans. Um, I mean, that's, that, that's, that's pretty large. And then today, Lloyd's, um, uh, they, they booked um, a £1.4 billion impairment so in terms of in terms of where this is you know at the moment where these these charges are being taken it's a mixture of um of a sort of dimming in the macroeconomic uh, outlook so banks essentially adjusting their forecasts for the performance of loans uh, over the coming year and, and years ahead um but mixed in with that we've got a few sector specific issues for example barclays has has included a 300 million pound charge related to low, you know lower for longer oil prices and the severe pain we're seeing in the the oil and gas sector they're quite they're quite heavily exposed to oil and gas relative to um to to the other lenders so uh, that's perhaps not surprising though worrying at the same time then um then we've got HSBC which in one of their impairments uh, was a large what they described as a uh, a large single corporate exposure in, in Singapore, which uh, which you know has 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 kind of widely been uh, interpreted as the bank's exposure to the uh, oil trading firm Hin Leong, which uh, you know is, is uh, alleged to have um, disguised some of his lo- its losses. So at the moment, it's it's on one-off big hits, and also a general more pe- more pessimistic picture for the economic environment in the, in the months ahead. Okay, so that's interesting. So, so some of this is fallout from the the absolute mayhem we're seeing in the oil market. I mean, Lloyd's Lloyd's is more of a UK lender and and more of a uh, a lender to households, particularly in the form of mortgages. Are we seeing any problems in the mortgage market? In terms of in terms of loan loss provisions, nothing material has been booked there uh, there as of yet. Though, um, I suppose the nature of, of of mortgage lending is that they are. Relative to, you know, for example, an oil and gas client, it's 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 a far less risky proposition to begin with. So um, we wouldn't be expecting to be to, to you know to see major major write downs there. That said, I mean the guidance. Uh, one of those quite striking things there is that the guidance on things like mortgages has been has been pretty thin so far um, uh, this week. When you would. You know, you would suppose that they're, you know, they are modelling for some quite serious loan loss provisions, just given the the sheer scale of the, you know, the the economic hit to just ordinary mortgage um, mortgage borrowers. So that is an unanswered question at present. Though, I mean, we're only we're only a, a month and a bit into the into you know the the, the real crisis. So we're we're, we're not, we, you know, we may be only talking about one or two mortgage payments deferred as of yet. So it's quite hard to know what the, you know, the potential impact on, on that large, particularly UK centric mortgage, uh, those those mortgage books is, is going to look like. Yeah. So the banks, essentially, they can ha- they have some control over the, the rate of bad loans in their mortgage books because they can they can offer people some kind of temporary forbearance. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I mean, UK UK Finance, which is the trade body for for banks and building societies, they, they say that 1.6 million payment holidays have so far been offered to to homeowners impact, impacted by COVID nineteen. So, the majority of those are going to be booked by the likes of um, RBS, Lloyd's, and, and Barclays, uh, and something like one in seven mortgages. Quite, it's quite stunning, really. And are now in some sort of payment holiday. So, that doesn't mean that that income is is going to disappear uh, forever it's been it's, in most cases it will have been deferred but at the same time 
payment holidays are going to have a neg- negative impact on on the, the sort of the long term effective interest rate earned, and therefore the income that banks can can generate. What that quantum is, I mean, I mean, at the moment is uh, is really anyone's guess. Yeah, and I guess it's kind of dependent upon how long this this kind of drags on for. So, you know, payment holidays cannot go on indefinitely. Yeah, I, I guess the banks, like everybody, are hoping for a solution as quickly as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, to, to to throw a spanner in all of that, I mean, there's a large question on on you know what happens to to, to the mortgage market uh, if if we get a really big shock to to house prices. Uh, I'd, I'd imagine some dent to house prices seems almost inevitable now. At the same time, there is a, a bit of a cushion in the fact that about two thirds of the mortgage activity is is a product transfer and remortgages. Those markets, you know, could remain fairly robust, and and they've even been extended to to homeowners who would not normally qualify, such as furloughed workers. So. Things haven't entirely dried up. First time house purchases uh, are, are pretty much dead at the moment, but um, it's not everything that is on 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 ice. What's, what's the buy to let market looking at? I know some of our readers will have buy to lets and buy to let mortgages. Uh, it's been a big uh, sort of line of lending, for, particularly for some of the challenger banks. What, what what's uh, what's happening there? Again, it's it's it's, it's very early days, so it's so it's it's um it, it's hard to say. But um, uh, looking at the the range of mortgage products out there, a lot of buy to let products have been have been um flushed out in recent weeks i mean there are some signs that some of these are are, are ticking up for example loan at higher low to loan to value uh, mortgages were down quite considerably at the beginning of april and they, there's some signs that that is that is rebounding more broadly it looks like uh the the range of, of buy to let products uh, has come down quite considerably whether that is an indicator that, that that lenders to those markets are seeing material stresses and concerns about the, you know, the the near term cash flow viabilities of uh, of, of buy to let mortgages, is is a question that's yet yet to be determined. I'm, I'm sure that would partly be factoring into some of those those product cuts. But but yeah, again, how that plays out is uh, is will be a longer term theme for the for the for the banks um, in 2020. I mean, well, one of the things we're always interested in when we're looking at the banks is the strengths of their balance sheets, their ability to survive these kind of situations. They obviously all went through significant stress tests over the years, but the interest rate has come down, which I guess makes life a lot tougher for them. How are those balance sheets holding up under under this intense pressure? We're only one quarter into the year, so um, it's quite it's quite early days there. On, on one hand, the the sort of enforced decision of the banks to cut their final dividends for, for 2019 has has in a way propped up their their capital levels at the same time the regulator has said what's called a, a counter cyclical buffer which is a, an an extra a chunk of capital which banks are normally required to hold which is actually going to go up to 2% of their of their CET1 ratios this year uh, has been reduced to to zero so in a way that's good because it means for, for banks because they have to uh, hold slightly slightly less um, uh, capital, but at the same time, there is severe balance sheet. Uh, there's severe stress on, on on some of these loans, so risk weighted assets are going up, and that has the effect of knocking these CET one sort of regulatory capital uh, levels. So at the moment, uh, I'd say one 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 takeaway from first quarter results is that these don't appear to have been materially tested so far. That though investors should definitely expect these to wind down in some cases quite considerably in the, in the coming quarters not only because of this this buffer has been removed but we're just going to see 
one um, a lot more a lot more pain and, uh, and and provisions and and two really the income generating capacity of banks has been really hit both by the interest rate uh, cuts and and just just the you know the the lending activity which can be done profitably out there at the moment I guess now the big question is what you know where next for bank shares. I mean, things look pretty tough. Um, we're seeing some results. What what's the reaction been? Are they worth holding? Well, I mean, if you're an income investor, that that question may have been answered in the last month as to whether they're they're worth holding. For some for some investors, that was the only reason uh, worth holding the banks is for their otherwise fairly utility like um, uh, uh, reliable dividend streams. Um, in terms of what's next for 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 banks, I, I would imagine. Share prices are going to remain under some pressure this year, uh, with one caveat is that the price to book value ratios of most banks are now at such incredibly depressed levels that, in a sense, it's it's harder to see how much lower they can go. And in the case of Barclays, I suppose that's one, one interesting share. As we noted this week, booking a £2.1 billion credit impairment charge is never going to be good news, but their shares actually jumped on those results. Um, and that's partly due to their investment banking arm had a had a pretty good quarter in what was uh, a huge mar- market volatility and a lot of turmoil there so their trading desks performed quite well and that has that has been a, a a sort of bone of contention in one one degree for Barclays because it's a big drain on on capital but it is proved what um, the, the chief executive Jess Staley has been saying for some time in that the these having an investment banking arm alongside uh, you know your more consumer facing arm is is actually quite um, complementary in times of serious stress like those we're seeing. So potentially um, Barclays of, of any I'd, I'd say looks like they offer a little bit of value, but I mean again our our, our general view on on bank shares is um, is that uh, things are very very difficult there for for any hopes of capital appreciation and, you know, just look at interest rates to get a sense of, of how easy it is for them to make money. Mm, I know one thing they've been talking about is kind of trimming the cost base a bit. And uh, something that you've spoken about is is actually a lot of their cost base is a property base, as we've just discussed with Emma, you know, people are working at home more. Yeah, how much, I mean, is there really much scope for them to really save the, the kind of amounts of money that they need to through kind of working differently, closing branches, becoming more digital? Yeah. And I mean, it, yeah, it's a good question. And and it's a question they've been trying to answer um, with limited success over the last few years. You know, as, as lots of listeners will obviously know, I mean, ba- banks are generally, with a couple of exceptions, cutting their their uh, their branches uh, as, as much as they can because they, they, you know that is that is one of the areas where they've been able to cut costs easily. One one interesting question from from the, the current pandemic and. The sort of enforced move for lots of uh, lots of banking customers online. I mean, digital bank app downloads are said to be you know at all time highs in, in the last month. Is whether this can all act as a, a sort of an accelerator to to actually to move increasingly online? Yeah, I mean, how and when they do that uh, is 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 a question that's. Um, that yeah is, is likely to play out over the, over the next couple of years, but that is one area which you might have a bit of optimism if you are a, a bank a, a bank investor in that actually they now have a sort of mandate to cut a bit more from their their cost cost base than they previously were were angling for. Uh, also, I mean the the work working from home experiment. I mean it's been quite noticeable from these results, but the praise that chief executives have given on how efficient the transition has often been for uh, working from home operations. If that works now, then um, 
there should be questions uh, and uh, inevitably on, on on whether some of those savings can be carried forward um, once hopefully things get better. Yeah, I mean, bank, banks have big um, call centres and, it, you know, one area where I've already seen there being sort of uh, discuss, discussions of a permanent transition is, is actually move, say, moving call centre operatives into home. Um, so, yeah, you could imagine there's some, there's some big savings there. Absolutely, yeah. Brilliant. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, John. The Investment Hour. So now I'm going over to Phil Oakley. How are you doing, Phil? Yeah, I'm all right. Thank you, John. All right. You enjoying yourself at the moment? Enjoying the markets this week? That's a no, by the way. I did, oh, there was a there was a loaded question. <laughs> I can see Phil's face on uh, on our Zoom. <laughs> I would be enjoying them if they bear any <clears throat> any resemblance to reality. Yeah, well, that's the subject of my column this week in the magazine. I, th- I think we I think we all know that markets are uh, doing funny things at the moment. There's some funny reasons for that. Um, having said that, one of the one of the things that's doing well on the markets is technology companies. Um, before we start talking about the nature of revenue uh, and why sales are perhaps more uh, than vanity, as the old saying suggests, let's talk about technology because because it's it's come up in your alpha report this week um, as part of this of how we might adapt to a changed world after COVID. We we were we were chatting on Twitter with some guys at the weekend about this. Um, what, what, what's your take on all this, Phil? I think you know I think the world will change after this. I think um, you know like many 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 sort of big events in life and in the world they you know they get us to look at look at things in a different way and um, humans are very good at adapting and changing to what life throws at them and it's one of the reasons why I think as a race we've survived and prospered for so long you know we 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 get we, we get into a routine that we stick with for years and years and years and something comes along and upsets that and we do something different and we think actually this works quite well. And I think we are going through one of those moments now. And I think a lot of the things that we're all doing now, we will do more of. And um, that has a lot of implications for you know what you and I talk about every week. Yeah. So one of those things is working from home, um, and that's something that you do quite a lot that, that I'm not so used to doing. And I think in your report you say something like, you know, this is this is what we're all going to get used to, and it's actually going to change a lot of a lot of, a lot of behaviours in the way we work, and that could actually have some impact on on productivity. Even uh, now, I am actually kind of struggling with working from home right now. Tell me how to get used to it, Phil, and why why this might change behaviours in the office. Well, I think it's fair to say that you know we are probably quite fortunate that we have a job that we can work from home. I mean, lots of people don't have have those uh those kind you know if you work in a factory you can't work at home things like that so but there are you know i've always held the view that there are lots of people getting in cars in the morning getting on busy trains and buses to go and sit at a desk um and when they get there they get lots of distractions and they don't get a lot of work done and i think um what what will have been very revealing to a lot of employers over the last four to five weeks is how much work people actually do um, rather than how much time they actually spend in the office. And I've always, always been of the view, uh, well, not always, but certainly for the last 15 years, 15, 20 years, that one of the reasons we have a huge productivity problem in this country, people go on about British productivity, well, because the large reason for this, in my opinion, very simple, simple view, is that we have 
managers and companies that manage inputs, not outputs. So they look at look at how long people spend in the office. We have this culture of presenteeism where no one dare leave the office before five, five o'clock or 5.30 because they will be called a shirker. But actually, no one actually looking at what, what these people are actually producing. You know, as I say, you know, I can put my cat on a chair for 10 or 12 hours a day. He'll sit in the office quite happily and he'll do as much work as a lot of people in offices have been getting away with for years. That did make me laugh, that line. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, but but it's like, you know, there's no, you know, in some jobs, you know, this job that we do, writing, I mean, it's a, it is a productivity job. It is an output job. And if you fall short, then uh, your editor um, knows about it very quickly. And so, I mean, in that way, it's quite it's quite useful to to measure measure output. But I think productivity um, from working from home can go up. There is a skill to working from home. Um, you have to have the right setup. And I've been doing this for a large part of the last 10 years, but you have to be very disciplined to do it. You have to be very focused. You have to be very structured. But when you are free of the distractions, it is amazing how much work you can get done. I couldn't do my job for you working in, our, in, in the FT offices. Couldn't do it. Too many distractions. And plus, I think, you know, I probably like to talk too much because I don't get out very often. But I just couldn't, I just couldn't do it. I, I you know, I need, I need that time to focus and, and do it. And I think that, I think the combination of working at home, it takes a bit of getting used to. It takes time to sort of put a strategy together. But once you get it, you can be incredibly productive. And that's good for everyone. Yeah, I, I don't think I've found a strategy yet, but then we were sort of thrown into this really without having had a lot of time to think about how we work from home. You know, we literally reinvented the way we put the magazine together in the space of a week. And yeah, I think you mentioned on Twitter, you know, you can put the magazine together from your kitchen table, but but it is it's difficult. You know, I think I think there's going to be a lot of, to make this work properly, it's not just for the change that's forced upon us, but there has to be some change that we now manage to make it work properly. And it's not just, it's not just that though, it's the fact that we have the technology and the software that, that enables us to do that. So you have an, in, an internet connection and then software and stuff on the internet that you use. If we didn't have that, we can't do it. But I think what a lot of people have learned is actually a lot of the stuff that we that, that is on there is very good. I mean, we're doing it now. We are having a conversation remotely. Yeah, I think I think this infrastructure. I think it could get better though. Uh, and I think you know what we've discovered. So yes, this technology is amazing, and it's allowing us to do things that we couldn't do before but it needs refining. If this is to become the new normal, then this technology needs to be improved in, in, in specific ways that, that actually work for, you know, for our specific uh, function, putting a magazine together. You know, that's, we, we're cobbling together our solution with lots of bits of technology like Slack and, and Zoom and Hangouts and, and, and whatever else, instant messaging. We need something that works for us a bit better. Um, you know, and I also think you know, the discipline, is, is that, that has to be managed as well. You, know, you talk about distractions, but there's lots of digital distractions too. I think there's a lot of pros and cons here. But nevertheless, it's translating into fantastic business for, for the tech companies, and you know, they're absolutely flying. I know Microsoft is a big favourite of yours. Um, wrote about it extensively recently, had some results yesterday, into the fantasy SIP. Yeah, no, I just think you know, there's nothing undiscovered about Microsoft. You know, it's one of the biggest companies in the world. It's been around for years, and 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 people know its products very well. 
um, or most of its products very well. But it seems perfectly set up now. I mean, I'm, I'm struggling to think of a company that is actually better placed to exploit this kind of remote working than Microsoft. Because if you look at what it's got, it has the cloud. You know, it's got its cloud infrastructure. It's got its servers. It's got its software. So it's got its office software. So you've got your productivity there. You've got your Microsoft Teams for your for your meetings. You've then got the Dynamics business, which is like a business management software where people can actually run their businesses. And that's linked into the cloud. So they've got all these bits and bobs that go together along, you know, they've got the software which enables it. And then they've got the infrastructure, which is what you need. And together, it's a fantastic package of products. And we saw yesterday, you know, we saw the results yesterday in, in their third quarter results. And bear in mind here, the, the company's results were from beginning of January until the end of March. So what happened with the lockdown and, and the virus had virtually no impact on these results at all. And the revenues were up 15% and the profits were up 25 And, you know, the bits that benefit from the lockdown, so the cloud stuff, is doing better than, say, what, what loses. So all the cloud stuff and the software and the office, that, that benefits in a big way. What loses is things like advertising revenue on LinkedIn, a lot of job losses. You lose a lot of, of rev, advertising revenue. You lose advertising revenue on Bing, the search engine. And of course, if businesses are buying fewer computers, that means that there is fewer copies of Microsoft Windows getting installed on them. But thankfully for Microsoft, those aren't the key drivers of its business. And it's just just a really, really good business. And, it, it, you know, it's not cheap. You know, it trades on about 29 times trailing 12-month earnings. But, you know, do you have confidence that in five, 10 years' time, this, these, this selection of technologies that they have is going to be used by more people? Well, I do. And, um, you know, the ability to grow probably means that these shares are a good long-term bet. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, the, the other thing you mentioned in your Alpha report, um, and you know, this is something that we, we often experience when we're on these video calls, um, is the quality of the UK's broadband network. So some of my colleagues quite clearly have very bad broadband connections. Mine's okay. Yours is yours is decent, not as good as mine. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah, mine's decent. Um, but uh, but What's yeah, yours, I mean, this mine, mine is BT. It's actually it's really decent. Uh, Fibre to cabinet. Okay. But it's but I think it could be better. I, th- I it feels to me like this is an area where the UK needs quite significant investment. Getting this broadband infrastructure absolutely firing. Uh, I agree. Uh, I I think BT BT's been trying to do broadband on the cheap in this country. It's it's been it's been and it's, to be fair to it, it's actually done quite a good job of squeezing quite fast speeds out of the copper old copper network uh, but it can't do that it can't really do that anymore and um you know the fiber the fiber to the cabinet okay if you don't live too far from the cabinet and if you know i don't know i've not i've not i've not experienced any problems but then again you know i've got teenage son upstairs who's gaming and stuff and you know you know I, i've got probably got the same sort of fiber as you've got and it works okay but we're we're only 250 meters from the cabinet i think if we were a mile from the cabinet it might be a different story but 
yeah, you know, it's going to take billions to upgrade this. But, you know, for me, I, I would much rather see tens of billions spent on this than a fast train line out of London to the north of England, you know? Yeah, it certainly could change those government spending priorities. I mean, you know, I, I, I haven't been on the train for God knows how long. Um, and that, that's something you also talk about in the Alpha Report, you know, we're going to need to commute less. This is going to have an impact on, on, on rail operators. It's going to have an impact on the people providing off, office space, which you've already talked about on this, this podcast. But yeah, I mean, th- there was talk maybe... Four weeks ago, when we started talking about permanent changes in behaviour, that actually we were, get, we were getting ahead of ourselves. But actually, the more we do this, the, the, the likelier it seems that some of these changes are going to stick and, and that some, some industries like rail and travel and property have got, have got some pretty big challenges ahead. I agree. I mean, I thought it was very interesting yesterday that the, the chief executive of Barclays came out and just said the era of big offices is over. If, you know, if businesses like Barclays are saying that, then, you know, they're not going to be the only one. I think it has a big implications for commercial property, particularly in big cities like London. Potentially even has implications for residential property as well, because if the infrastructure is there, then, you know, people can, you know, move to cheaper, cheaper areas, cheaper areas of the country and still still do their jobs. Maybe get on a tr- Maybe get on a train once a week and go to the office once a week uh, and, and, and keep in touch. I mean, I did that. I moved to a place that isn't on a train line. You know, I took it on the chin that I have to drive to the station every day. And it is a right pain. It's a right pain. And now I think I can do that much less. This is great. And, you know, take my house and put it in London. I dread to think what I'd pay. I did 10 years of, 10 years of you know, getting up at half past five and commuting and coming back at seven o'clock and it it kills you you know it's and it's just it's that's just wasted time never never mind the effect it has on your health and well-being so i think there's a lot of positives from this a lot of potential positives yes there will be some losers what it what it needs though it needs the management of companies to embrace this and above all else, to trust their employees, because a lot of a lot of working from home is down down to trust. But it also comes down to what I was saying right at the beginning, is that if you measure measure employees, or if you can, I appreciate that some jobs are easier to do this than others. But if you can actually just measure people on what they produce rather than how long they sit there, and you trust them to get on with it. Then, then this can work. I mean, if you're if you're a boss and you can't trust someone to work from home, you've got to ask yourself why are you employing them in the first place. But th- this is what it needs for a for a buy-in. And you know, if the whole thing about working nine to five as well, I think potentially could change. I think I think the flexibility, as long as the job gets done by a certain time, give people the freedom, empower people, just judge them on what they produce. And this thing can work and it can have massive positive benefits for society, the economy. And it's you know, something that I've been passionate about for, for a long time because I do it. You know, I'm talking my own, my own book here, but I, I feel that it works for me. I think every employer I work for hopefully thinks it's worked for them. I haven't let them down and um, I want to see more of it. And I hope that this could be one of the good things that comes out of all of this. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I think the trust thing is really interesting. Um, you know, I think that certainly the staff of the Investors Chronicle have proved that they can be very much trusted. You know, the, the thing I can't trust them to do is stop working. 
you know, people are putting in stupid hours to get this thing out. And, and, and that does worry me. So, so actually, I think the trust thing is kind of flipped in some ways. You know, we have to trust managers and the people running companies not to take advantage of the, the, their staff homeworking and the, the extra productivity that that brings. I, I, think, I think the trust thing has flipped and perhaps even the power dynamic in companies can flip as a result of this, which I don't see as a bad thing at all. No, I don't. I don't. It just needs to be, you know, I think, you know, if someone's put in, put in a shift to get a magazine out, let them have the next day off. You know, if they've done the, done the job, I think there's been, you know, I don't want to sound like some militant trade unionist from the 1970s, but I think this think this whole thing about, you know, one of the things about productivity is that, you know, obviously we're not on, we're not going back to piecework, but productive workers lose out because they get paid if they're doing the same job as somebody who's unproductive they get paid the same wage and they sometimes they can be doing twice the amount of work and what should actually be happening is they should be getting thursday and friday off you know if the employer but what the employer is getting is a load of free labor um is getting a load of free labor from one person he's getting a load of expensive labor from the other and i, I think it needs a you know a complete a complete change in outlook, but I, I, I think you know the things about the productivity puzzle in the UK. I mean, it's a difficult thing anyway. I mean, how how, how on earth do you measure this for lots of things? It's it's a, almost a ridiculous thing, but it you know the amount of work done. Um, if you can measure it, you know, I I think that it's like part time workers. You know, I've seen a lot of part time workers produce as much work as full time workers do for half the money. And um, what I think, you know, what I think one of the biggest problems that we've had in the economy for the last 30 or 40 years is that labour workers have actually not got a fair cut of the cake and a lot of the a lot of the benefits of production have accrued not to the workers. You can argue that 40, 40, 50 years ago, the balance was completely the other way. Uh, And now the pendulum has probably swung too far in favour of of businesses well for, in favor of maybe shareholders or executives yeah, and exec- yeah. you know, excessive executive pay absolutely yeah I, I i think that you know if you want to get in you know what if you look at if you look at what the central bankers are going on at the moment central bankers are petrified of falling prices they are petrified of deflation well, i'll tell you one way you can solve solve deflation is just just pay workers a bit more cash because they'll go and spend it Prices will go up. Um, that's one of one of the easy, easiest ways to. If you're worried about deflation, that is one way that you can do it. But I don't want to get all political here. But I do. I do think that it's one of one of the big problems in terms of things like inequality. It's amazing how all these prob- a lot of these problems that people talk about in the world often they all meet at the same roundabout. This is definitely a very interesting roundabout. It is a very interesting roundabout. It's, it's, it is. It's extraordinary. Should we spend uh, Should we spend a few minutes talking about your magazine column, Phil? Which okay. is interesting. Uh, so, so I introduced this by saying, you know, there is this old old phrase. Sales are, are vanity, profit is sanity. But there's a there's a bit of a nuance that you explore in your piece this week. Talk us through it. Well, I think the thing is, you know, just getting really back to basics is that if you haven't got any sales, if a company hasn't got any revenues, I prefer the word sales. Actually, I always think sales is a better word than, than revenues. But Why? Because it just just what I was brought up with, you know, it's what, you know, you make a sale, you make a sale, you know, I've made a sale today. I've sold something to somebody. It's a sale. Yeah. We just, we, we generate revenues these days, Phil. We generate revenues. I know. I know. We do. We do. But I say, you know, 
pretty much the same thing. Um, they're the lifeblood of any business. Without it, you are not going to survive very long and you are not certainly not going to prosper um, long term if you don't grow those revenues. What's what's a really interesting exercise, and this is what I've done done this week, is you just actually start with these basic sales and just start looking at a company's revenues. And it is absolutely amazing what you can learn um, about a business. And um, all this information is pretty much in like the annual report uh, or on the investors' presentations. And, you know, just start with the basics, such as where does the company get its get its revenues from? Sales, you Bill. Find Sales. <laughs> Sales, yeah. Where does it get its revenue? We'll talk about we'll talk about revenues. Where does it get its revenues from? You know, who are its customers? What's the nature of those revenues? You know, are they contracted? Are they expensive items? Are they things that people buy every day? All these are the things that you can find out. And it's often often people just gloss over these kind of things. You know, it's oh, it's a number. Oh, I'll move on to the next number. I'm more interested in the profit. And then you know you can. Then start, you know, analyzing things like, um, you know, whether the whether the sales change over time. Um, has it, you know, how 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 the makeup of a company's revenues has changed over time? Very simple things like, you know, are they seasonal? You know, does this company rely on making a large chunk of its sales or revenue, sorry, um, at Christmas or in the summer or at one particular, you know, one particular time of year? And, and knowing that. Is very important because you know if that you know it's a it's a wet summer or it's a poor Christmas that the profits for that that company are not going to be good for that year. And then then you can you know you start off with the basics and you can learn a lot. And then you know depending on what kind of information the company gives, you can really start drilling down and looking at how companies changing. And I've talked about this in the article about you know how you can analyze a company's like for like revenues and how you can get the numbers that the companies tell you over the years, and then you can actually work between. So say, say for example, that company gives you a trading update after 10 weeks and tells you what the sales were for the first 10 weeks, then gives you one for 20 weeks and say, oh, for the first 20 weeks of this, doesn't tell you what, what they were in between, but you can work it out. And then you can then work out, you know, the momentum, the changing, and you can spot, you can spot subtle changes in revenues that perhaps people who just read the statement and just take the number at face value will miss. Like for likes is something that we see a lot in the retail industry because you can open new stores and that will boost your sales or you can buy in revenue and that will boost your sales. So so, so like for likes are important because they give us the, the sort of consistent picture. Yeah, so in very simple terms, if you've got a shop, it'll tell you what that shop is doing. So you know, if you're a retailer, you have have shops and you can grow your sales by opening more shops or selling more from your existing shops. And what you really want to see is that is you look a bit about the quality of the revenue growth. And if you've got your existing shop selling more stuff, that's usually a better sign of company health than one that's just growing by opening up shops. And I talk about, I won't go into it in complicated, but I talk about you know some of the effects that can sort of make like-for-like sales a bit murky when you've got lots of shops opening up over a number of years because they're all getting up to speed and they can distort the like-for-like sales figure. But people can read the article and get into that. And then, you know, you can also spot things, you know, you can spot things going wrong. You know, when you know we've had a number of circumstances in the last 
five or six years of very high profile, high growth retailers or restaurant companies that just run out of growth and they open up too many bars or too many restaurants and they start taking sales from themselves, something that's something called sales cannibalization. And then, you, you know, then you can get into things like, you know, the difference between selling volume and prices. You know, you can grow your sales either by selling more or putting the prices up or a combination of the two. The example we give here is uh, Unilever. Yeah. And, you know, a big criticism of Unilever over the years is that it's grown through price increases. Yeah. And I guess the danger of that is that you you reach the limit to which consumers will accept those price increases. Yeah. And and it's often a sign of a business that's in trouble or or a business that perhaps is abusing its position. A classic example of this was, you know, this was Sainsbury's in the late 1980s. Right. If you if you were to look at sort of Sainsbury's in the late 1980s, early 1990s, and you were to go and study its accounts, you pretty much knew that a large chunk of virtually all of its sales growth was coming from putting its prices up and it became too expensive. And Tesco came along and ate its lunch. I mean, there were other reasons for that. But one that wasn't, you know, I think Marks and Spencer has done that. I think I think companies like John Lewis um, are, are perhaps guilty of that or have been guilty of that. And it's about, you know, not taking your customers for granted. You know, you, you might think that, you know, people talk about pricing power. Yeah. They want to see pricing power and they see that as a sign of strength. It's often a sign of weakness because because you are taking your customer, you're abusing your customer base and you are then potentially attracting new entrants to come and take your business away from so understanding what you want to see is companies grow by volume and probably one of the best examples of company growing by volume is amazon so amazon amazon cuts prices grows by grows volume that way and um so again trying to understand that if you can i mean some companies don't tell you that but if companies do tell you that then spending some time Looking at that is a good thing. And then, then the other thing, I mean, she was a bit more advanced, is, you know, looking at how a company drives its sales. And, you know, one of the ways that companies can drive sales is by selling on credit. And there's lots of ways that you can check the quality of a company's credit, you know, looking at bad debts, looking at debts that are overdue and that kind of thing. So the whole purpose of the article was to actually just show you, show the reader that this very sort of simple top line number that we all look at, there is huge amounts of information that stem from it. And if you take the time to actually look into it, you can learn huge amounts of valuable information and insight into a company's business. The, the one we're always looking for, certainly with sort of software companies like Microsoft, is, is this, this recurring revenue idea. So where you've basically got subscription businesses where you're locking people in to, to, to long-term contracts. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a very va- valuable and powerful source of revenue. And the, the thing we also look for um, as a potential pitfall is companies that get their revenue from too few customers. So yeah, we would rather be seeing companies that are making lots of small amounts of revenue from hundreds and hundreds and thousands of customers rather than making most of their revenue from one big customer. Yeah, or a product. Or one product, exactly, which can p- perhaps be superseded. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, it is fascinating. It's really interesting. And, uh, yeah, definitely something that investors should pay more attention to. Did you like, uh, did you like Next's uh, update, by the way, this, this week? Um, did you have a look at it? 
I mean, I not yeah. necessarily the substance, but the presentation. I thought it was a it was a beautiful thing in terms of corporate reporting. It, it always is, and uh, yeah, I think sometimes we have to look a bit behind behind that. Now, I think I think this is without wishing to be a little bit of a damn squib on this. I think you know it is, and hats off to them. I mean, I've said this before, we've said it before, other people have said it. Great example of uh, of uh, communication with investors. Um, you know, they always give you a profit forecast, or they, or most of the time, they give you. You know, they're com- completely as open as they, I think, they probably can be, without telling their competitors what they're buying clothes for. You know, it's um, it's it's very good. I, I still think, you know, Next is sweep this aside. You know, I, I haven't changed my view. I think Next is, you know, it's one of the better retailers out there. Uh, uh, but it's going to be hard for this company to grow. I really do think it's going to be hard for this company to grow, even when we we get back into the normal a normal world. Because what seems to be happening is that its its sales are migrating from its stores onto the internet, and um, there isn't actually there isn't actually a lot of a lot of growth in this business. There's a very big reliant on rely again. We just talked about credit. Very, very big reliance on credit here as well in, in the uh, the next business. And I thought one of the interesting things they they alluded to the fact that they expect their credit customers, particularly in the which is mainly in the online business. I mean, I mean they still have store cards as well to take a bit longer to pay off their balances, and they also expect some defaults, but they didn't actually quantify the defaults. And I think one of the big risks to this business. I mean, it's interesting they, they were going to they were going to rein back their their credit lending as well um, for obvious reasons. Uh, but it, but I think the thing that I was sort of left pondering after looking at Next was you know what the what the bad debt situation could be at this company. They do they do disclose it's about fifty it's about forty fifty million a year actually. Yeah, something to keep an eye on. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you, Phil. Enjoy the weekend. Yeah, you too. We'll speak again next week. Yeah. Thanks, Phil. All right, cheers. Sadly, that is all we have time for this week. But before we go, let me just talk you through what else we have in this week's mag, which is now, in fact, the seventh magazine that we have produced from our kitchens, lounges, and bedrooms. Alongside Phil in the comments section, we have the usual insights, observations, and share ideas from Chris Dillo, Mr. Bearable, Simon Thompson, and Michael Taylor, who thinks there's a bit more juice to be squeezed out of the oil market, specifically the US tanker sector. And we've also looked at how to mitigate the oil market mayhem in this week's fun section. Make sure you tune into the PF podcast, which we will be recording later. As well as starring in several of our webinars this week, Algie Hall has been on the hunt for growth at a reasonable price in this week's stock screen. It's slim pickings at the moment, I'm afraid, but he's found an unlikely candidate that ticks all the right boxes. We have a few results, including the reappearance of our old friend Burford Capital, a Marmite stock if ever there was one, and the horrible trading updates and profit warnings that we may have expected are starting to flow thick and fast now, and you'll find them scattered throughout the magazine. A cratering economy does potentially mean an uptick in business for one sector, those involved in dealing with insolvencies, which we've looked at in depth. And Algie Hall has also written the cover feature, looking at how some of the best fund managers boost their returns by focusing on a few good ideas. An approach we'll be looking at in more detail in the magazine in coming issues. Watch this space. We have some interesting developments coming very soon. So, thank you all for listening, and thank you to all of our guests, Emma, Alex and Phil, and of course to Megan. Pick up the magazine. In all good news agents, follow the leader. Why it pays to track the best ideas from the best fund managers. Or if you're still stuck indoors, get onto the internet and subscribe. Take care and speak soon.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.